Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Why, in just a second, the goal each week is that not just the sermon would remind us of the hope that we have in the gospel, not just the sermon would point us to Jesus, but that everything we do would, would, would be pushing us constantly and pointing us constantly to Jesus. And I'm grateful for that this morning because as we come to the passage that we're looking at in 2 Corinthians, um, it's, it's a passage that I have really struggled with exactly what to do with this passage all week. It, it's just, it's a weird passage and, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. And, and, and so I'm grateful for the service, this, our liturgy this morning and how gospel-centered it is because as I was walking up here, Annie leaned over and said, hey, the sermon's going to be okay because we've already had all of this. And so I'm like, okay, good. So I'm encouraged and I'm grateful that the session has made our service what it is because because the gospel is just so clear in it. Um, So if you have a Bible, do turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 12. And earlier, I thought we were going to stop at verse 13. We're actually going to go through the end of chapter 2, through all the way through verse 17. So let's give our attention once again to the reading of this passage of God's holy word. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not uh, writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause pain, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him 
or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Most gracious Father, I ask that you would strengthen me this morning by your Spirit to preach the gospel clearly, as I ought to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage is weird but helpful. It's, it's, it's weird not in, in, in the way that later passages in 2 Corinthians are going to be weird where Paul talks about somebody getting caught up to the third heaven or whatever. That's a different kind of weird. This is weird just in trying to figure out how to deal with and what exactly is going on. But it's it's also helpful because, because it points us to Jesus over and over and over again. Part of what makes this passage weird is that we don't really know the full background of what's going on. We've got some ideas because we've got 1 Corinthians and we've got the book of Acts and it tells us a little bit about Paul's journeys. But we also know that there were some trips that happened to Corinth that didn't go well. We know that there were some other letters that he wrote, one of which was apparently pretty severe. And, and we know there was a lot of tension there, but we don't really have the details. And, and so the, the content of what's going on here this defense of him changing his plans and, and these theological digressions, and, and it just kind of makes it all weird. But, but that's also what makes it helpful. Because, see, what we see here is that, that Paul, and I'm not implying here that, that, in, that with the Corinthians he somehow necessarily messed up, but what we see is that he's not just this unflawed hero like we often think he is. And, and we do that with people a lot, don't we? When we, when we see somebody of status, we, we just assume like, oh, they have no flaws. Last night, Annie and I were watching um, the Eagles and the Giants play. And there was one play where, where the, the Giants quarterback got tackled and then the game got stopped because his contact had come out. And I remember thinking, I actually said it to Annie, I was like, wait a minute. He wears contacts? Like, like in my mind, I get that they get hurt playing, but in my mind, you've got these just like titans that like, yeah, they're going to get hurt in battle, but other than that, like there's no physical flaws, right? And then I'm like, wait, he's got bad eyes. And it, 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 it literally, I was like, like, I had to think about it for a second. Sometimes we're that way with Paul. We just assume like, no, Everything he did like, was perfect, and, and, and he was able to minister without tension with other believers. But that wasn't the case. 
And he admits that that's not the case. He's de- I mean, that's what 2 Corinthians is, is really all about. And, and, and what's helpful is that when these tensions and failures arise, Paul points everyone to Jesus. It, it's as if he's saying, look, let's go back to square one. Let's start there and then work out from there. And that's kind of what he's doing here. He's admitting like, hey, there's this tension. There's this struggle between us. And and, and there's these accusations and and all of this stuff. But here's Jesus. Here's the one that that, that our life is centered on. Here's the one in whom God will deliver us once again. Here's the one that leads us in triumphal procession. Let's start with him and work out from there as we try to figure this out. So what exactly is the setting that's creating all of this tension. Well, here's here's most, at least, of what we know. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5, Paul had told the Corinthians, I'm going to come to you after I come home from on my way back home to Judea from Macedonia. I'm going to stop and hang out with y'all and probably stay for the winter. I'm going to be there for a good long bit. And so that's what they were expecting. But then in 2 Corinthians 1, 16, in our passage this morning, we find out that, that Paul's plans changed. And he went to Corinth on the way to Macedonia, and he planned to come back to Corinth again on his way home from Macedonia. But then we find out in in verse 23 that he didn't actually end up coming back after he went to Macedonia because things were a mess. And he didn't want to, and and, and we'll get to to some of why that is. But but that's essentially the issue. Paul's plans had, had changed a couple of times. And, and the Corinthians were using this as an opportunity for all kinds of things to undermine Paul's ministry. They, they were making a number of accusations like, oh, he's not a man of his word. That's the whole yes, yes, and no, no bit in, in, in verse chapter 1, verse 17. That's kind of the, the, the Jewish formula for, for taking a vow. And they're saying, oh, so you take vows, but you don't actually mean them. You're not a man of your word. We can't trust you. They were accusing him of, of following worldly wisdom, the wisdom of man. And, and, and some commentators think that, that, that they, they were accusing him of just wanting extra money. That's the real reason for his two visits, rather than following the Spirit, following God's lead. And so they were concluding, therefore, we should not listen to Paul anymore but should listen to these super apostles, that's Paul's word, not mine, these super apostles whose lives and ministry are big and flashy and whose teaching is powerful in its presentation. In other words, they they were looking at Paul's life, they were looking at his suffering that, that, that caused him to change plans, and they were saying, look, we don't trust you. You're not a man of your word. And and so we're not going to listen to you on anything anymore. We're going to go with these guys over here because they're powerful and and, and they come and and they're impressive and and their ministry is great and they're not weak in speech like you are, Paul. They've got good stuff to say and they're great orators and and, and all of that. So we're going to listen to them and not you. Now, we don't know exactly what these super apostles were teaching. Some argue that that there were some similar things happening in Corinth as were happening in Galatia, that that they were adding things to the gospel, adding law to the gospel and and, and works to the gospel as as the way of salvation. We we don't know exactly, but, but there are some things that indicate that that might be part of what was going on there. 
But the Corinthians were, were looking at it and saying their ministry, like it looks impressive, so that's who we're paying attention to and forget Paul. We, we, don't, we don't like Paul anymore. And so that's where Paul finds himself in this passage. That's what he's responding to. This church that he, is, that he had planted and that he has been faithfully ministering to, and, and that's a little bit of a mess, is, is kind of attacking him. And so his defense begins in verse 12, and he says, I, I behaved in simplicity and sincerity towards you. Like, he's arguing... I wasn't just doing what I wanted to do. I, I wasn't seeking me. I wasn't seeking my glory. That's not what this is about. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that, that we behaved, with, behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. He's essentially saying, look, I'm doing the best I can here. Richard Pratt, in his commentary on this section, says that the issue is that that Paul found himself in this no-win situation. On the one hand, he had gone, and it had not gone well, and they were mad at him for that. And so he's like, okay, well, I won't go back again, because I don't want to get mad at him again. That's what he tells us uh, towards the end of chapter 1. And so then they got mad at him for that. It was like, it didn't matter what he did, going or coming, they were going to be frustrated with him. I mean, this kind of thing never happens now in the church, which is why this has been such a hard passage to figure out how to preach. But he's telling them, and and when he says that that my conscience is clean or the testimony, he's not saying like, hey, I haven't ever sinned. That's not how Paul, we use the conscience that way. That's not how Paul used the conscience. He's simply saying, look, I, I prayed about it. I sought God. I made a decision. And I took a step. That's what I did. I I wasn't acting trying to gain from you. I I wasn't acting trying to to like sneak around or or, or be underhanded. And then he continues his defense in verse 15. Because of this, because he wanted to rejoice with them and and because he was confident that that they would boast in him and, and him in them. In other words, that they would together celebrate what Jesus had done for them. He was like, I want to go twice. So they can can have the second experience of grace. In other words, what what Paul's desire was, well, the the first change of his plans was because he loved them and and wanted to spend more time with them and and wanted to rejoice in God's grace with them even more. So he's like, you know what? I can read a map. Corinth is kind of between where I am and where I'm going. Why don't I just stop in on the way to Macedonia, say what's up, and then when I leave Macedonia, I'll stop again makes perfect sense. But this led them to accuse him of not being a man of his word. This, uh, of vacillating. Because see, this is, this is what we do. When, when we see someone that, that, like, that we don't want to listen to anymore, when we see someone that we don't want to respect anymore, when we see someone, whatever it may be, we'll, we'll find anything, any minor thing that we can blow up into something big to justify writing them off. We, we all do this to people. We, we all do this to each other. And that's what they were doing to Paul. But then he made a second change to his itinerary, 
And he tells us in, in, in verses chapter 1, verse 23, down through verse 4, he says, the second change that I made, basically, if, if we can put it in kind of some, some modern colloquialisms, he's like, I didn't want to have to break you off when I saw you again. Because, because he was frustrated at this point. Because they weren't listening to what he said. He, he was calling them to repentance. He, he was reminding them. Remember what he says. We, we use this as our affirmation of faith this morning. I passed on to you what was of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he rose. That he have, like, Paul's like, look, I have told you about Jesus. That has been the core of my message. And y'all are writing it off. And y'all are writing me off. And y'all are living with these divisions and, and, and coming after each other. And, and now you're coming after me. And, and so he says, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming to Corinth. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. See, Paul Paul's one of those guys, I think, I don't know, this is a little bit of historical imagination. Paul's one of those guys that I think we, we read his letters and, and, and we think about him and, and we see his travels and hear what he said in the book of Acts and we're like, oh, that dude would confront anyone at any time. I mean, he got in Peter's grill and was like, you're cut off from G. Like, he was willing to, like, go toe-to-toe at any point. But the reality is, when we, when we really look at who Paul was, that doesn't actually seem to be the case. Well, he, he was willing to do that when he had to. Obviously, he did it with Peter. But he didn't like doing it. He would much rather people repent and, and look to Jesus again. That was his preference. And so he decided, essentially, I'm going to give you all some time to marinate in the gospel. Because if I come right now, it's on. And I don't want to do that. Because I've already had one hard visit with you. And I've already sent one hard letter to you. So, so I'm going to let you think about what you've done. And I'll come back around at some point. Because he didn't want this relationship to be full of tension and full of pain. So he wrote the letter, and he tells us that this letter was, was written from, from a broken heart. For, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. See, that's what was motivating Paul and all this, was that he loved these people. He cared deeply for them, even though they were attacking him, even though they were trying to undermine his ministry. And so he had sent that letter, and then down in verse uh, 13 and 14, we find out that, that, that he got to Troas, where he was supposed to apparently meet up with Titus, and Titus wasn't there, so he didn't know what the response was. So he's like, okay, I'm going to wait until I know what's going on. And so he went ahead to Macedonia to try to find Titus and figure out what was going on. So, so that's kind of the setting. There, there's this relational tension between Paul and these believers, between Paul and this church that he planted, because these super apostles had come in and were making all this noise and, and being all fancy and cool and, and well-spoken. And so people were like, well, forget Paul. And, and, but then there were all these problems that they weren't addressing. And so Paul was like, I, I, I just, I can't today. So I'm not going back. I'm not going back right now until until I have some assurance that they're starting to come around. 
But in the middle of this defense that he makes, there are these theological digressions where he's reminding them, and, 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 and every commentary that you read approaches these a little bit differently and, and emphasizes different things. Here's what I think Paul is, Paul is doing. He, he's acknowledging the tension. He's acknowledging his weakness. He's acknowledging all of, all of their failures. And, but, but then he's going, but remember... Jesus is the one on which everything about us is based. He's the one, he's the reason that there's any fellowship between us at all. So so I think what Paul is doing is as he makes this defense, he doesn't want the defense to just be, I'm great, why don't you like me? His defense is, look, I haven't done the things that you've said I've done, but that doesn't really matter because our unity is, isn't based on me. Our unity is based on Jesus. And I think that's what, why he kind of keeps slipping into these theological digressions as he goes along. And so the first one comes beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, look, God is faithful, and, 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 and as, as sure as that is, I can tell you I'm not just up here making plans willy-nilly. There's stuff going on behind the scenes. There's stuff you don't get. And and then in verse 19 down through 22, he talks a little bit about God's faithfulness to remind them how surely God is faithful. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Right, So, so I, I don't think what Paul's doing here is trying to like weasel some weird theological explanation about the change of his plans. I think what he's saying is, look, God is faithful, and as surely as he's faithful, I, I wasn't vacillating. There was some stuff going on. Now, let's talk about how God is faithful. Jesus, the one that I told you about. That's how faithful he is. Because in him, all of his promises are yes. Now, that's an incredibly loaded statement, right? Because there's, there's a, a lot of promises in the Old Testament. There, there's a lot of promises of redemption, promises of, of our hearts being circumcised, promises of, of new life, promises of, of, of sins forgiven, promise, just promise after promise after promise of, of restoration and, and all of this. And Paul is saying, in Jesus, God is faithful to fulfill all of it. Every promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the promises made to Abraham, all the promises made through Moses, all the promises made to David, all all of them, all the promises made to Noah to sustain creation. He's saying all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. He's saying that's why Jesus is the focus of everything we do. He's saying, and and, and we begin to see that that even these theological digressions do at some level like play into his defense because he's saying, I'm not the reason. He's the reason. My ministry isn't about me and how great I am. It's about him and how great he is. He's the reason. He's the reason that we give glory to God. Because he has fulfilled everything that God has promised. We, we, in, in our liturgy, we read that, that he's the faithful high priest. 
year after year, month after month, day after day, these sacrifices are made over and over and over again. As Rob reminded us from Hebrews, none of them could take away sins. But Jesus died once for all. And nothing else is needed. And so there's forgiveness in him. See, that's what Paul's wanting them to drive, wanting them to understand. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. So all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. We praise God through Christ. God establishes us together in Christ. Notice how, how Paul is essentially saying what John the Baptist said. I must decrease, he must increase. He, is, he does give a defense and say, hey, what y'all think is happening and what you're accusing me of, that's not true. But by the way, it kind of doesn't matter because what must happen here is our eyes must be fixed on Jesus because he fulfills God, God's promises. He's the reason we glorify God. And it's in him that God has established all of us. So see, he's driving them back, as he did in 1 Corinthians 15. He's driving them back. He's driving us back to those things of first importance. Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. The fulfillment that he has brought. And so it's instructive for us as as we feel tensions in our relationships, especially if we're dealing with other believers, This is instructive in in teaching us. No, we go back and we we start with Jesus. And and that's not some kind of like Jesus Jew, guy can one-up you, whatever. No, 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 no. This is reminding us of where we stand. It's taking our eyes off of us and fixing them back on where they need to be. Because when we have some tension with each other, if we just keep looking at each other, guess what happens to that tension? It grows. It grows every time, doesn't it? But when we take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on Jesus and are reminded that, oh, he's the one that we're united in. It's not about how good I am, how good you are, how awesome of an apostle Paul is or how bad of a church Corinth is or whatever. It's about what Jesus has done. And God has established them in Christ and has anointed them, and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our heart as a guarantee. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, in Christ, he's given us everything we need to figure this out, to, 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 to reconcile, to, to come to repentance, to own what we need to own. He's given us the freedom to do all of that. Because guess what? Our standing doesn't depend on each other. It depends on Jesus. So Paul drives them back to Jesus. The the second digression is is more of a practical one in in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Apparently there was was one one dude in particular that was real problematic, and and most commentators think that that he was probably pretty powerful, pretty influential in the church, and and, and had really kind of created some big problems. And in verses 5 through 11, Paul says, restore him. Restore him. Because we don't want even him, we don't want him to be overcome by excessive sorrow. Paul Paul gets, he's like, I know he's caused problems for me. I know what's going on here. I'm not a dummy. Restore him. Why? 
Because if I've forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we were not ignorant of his designs. Again, Paul, Paul's attaching this idea of forgiveness to their forgiveness in Jesus. If I've forgiven anything, it's not for me, it's for the sake of Christ. Why? Why? I, I think this is, in, in a nutshell, what Paul's saying is, why are we going to hold on to these tensions between us? Why are we going to hold on to this division between us? Why are we going to keep judging each other and, 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 and trying to make each other feel guiltier and guiltier and, and, and worse and worse about ourselves? Why are we going to do that when we know how Satan works and we know he wants to work the division? Why are we going to do that rather than extend the forgiveness that has been extended to us in Jesus Christ? And that's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question for all of us. So, so Paul tells him in, in, in this digression, restore that guy, forgive him, and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. See, that's what Paul wants, is the unity of the body that, that, that is founded upon the finished work of Jesus Christ to be reflected even in these ways of the restoration of one who has done everything he can to destroy the unity of the body. It's an incredible statement. It's an absolutely incredible statement about what it means to live in the forgiveness of Christ. The third digression comes uh, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2 down through the end of the chapter. And here, Paul, Paul reminds us of who Jesus is, that he's the conquering king. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Kids, there it is. Jesus leads a parade of victory, and we get to follow him. Parents, there it is. Adults, there it is. Jesus leads a victory parade, and we get to be part of it. We get to walk in that grand victory parade, not because we've won, not because we've conquered, but because he has. And he leads us in victory. You know what I'm going to say next. It's like David and Goliath. After David defeats Goliath, what do they do? They follow their king in victory and slay the Philistines. They didn't win the victory they didn't defeat the enemy, but they got to live in light of it. Paul's reminding them, even as he makes this defense, hey, this is where we need to start. We get to live in the light, in the glory of the victory of what Jesus, our King, has done for us. He leads us, always leads us in triumphal procession. Think about that. That's how he's always leading us. We're, we're going through a lot right now, some of us. Always, Jesus is leading us in a victory parade. Always. Always. He's already conquered sin. He's already conquered death. We're already forgiven. We stand justified 
if we're in him, we're, we're not walking a trail of tears. We're not walking a death march. We're walking in a victory parade. That's what we're doing. I get it. Doesn't always feel much like a victory parade. But if Jesus is the one that's leading us, that's what's happening. That doesn't mean we just look at life and like, oh, isn't this great? It's such a fun parade when it's falling apart around us. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that we have to understand who it is that's leading us. And he's the king that has conquered. He's the God who works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sometimes that victory parade goes through the valley of the shadow of death. But like the psalmist reminds us, like David reminds us, he's with us there. And in fact, he's leading us there as a good shepherd in victory. Think about what happens on the other end of that valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He always leads us in triumphal perception. And through us, and and, and people debate whether he means us, meaning me and the Corinthians, or us, meaning me and other preachers, or or me and the other apostles, or whatever. Let's take it big. And, And always through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We're the fragrance of Christ to the world. Yes, preachers and and, and those who have been called to the ministry of word in in a particular way, yes. But all of us, all of us carry with us that fragrance everywhere we go. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. All Paul means there is that that, that what we're we're announcing, the the, the smell that, that, that we smell, is the only smell that can get you anywhere. That's it. It's not like the candle aisle at Walmart where you're like, hmm, that smells good. Ooh, that one's real good. Ooh, that smells like dirty diapers. I don't know why they make those candles. But, but it's not like, no, there's one smell. And you either love it and get life. Or you're repulsed by it and, and, and remain in sin and death. We all smell the same if we're in Christ. We all smell the same. And, and it's like Jesus. And, 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 and so then he says, who's sufficient? Like, what's going on? Who's sufficient for this? And he goes back to the, the, to the humble stance distinguishing between himself and and, and the other apostles and then the super apostles. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. And he goes back to where he started. But as men of sincerity, remember, we, we, we behaved in this world with simplicity and godly sincerity. As men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. See, what Paul's wanting them to understand is this. If you're gonna write me off, because my plans changed. If, if that is so offensive to you that you're going to write me and my message off, then you're writing off Jesus as well. 
That's a bold statement. That is an incredibly bold statement. And, and it doesn't mean that Paul thinks he can, you know, that, that he can make no errors. No, he's no fool. He's no fool. But he knows there's a difference between what he's preaching and what the super apostles are preaching. He knows there's a difference between his life and how they're living. And he's saying, if you don't want me and my weakness and my change of plans, and you want them and their glory, if you don't want me and the cross, if you want, if you want them and, and the way of glory, th- then guess what? You also lose the Jesus I'm talking about. Because he's one who leads us on the way of the cross. He's one who leads us in weakness. He, he's one who's with us in our sorrow. And they're trying to give you something else. And so I think that's what Paul's trying to do in in, in this kind of weird passage. Yes, he's defending himself, but he's defending himself in order to say, look, if me changing my plans is so offensive that you're not going to listen to what I say anymore and you're going to go find somebody else that suits you better, you better be careful. Because you're, you're going to lose Jesus too. You're going to lose the one who saves us. It's a bold statement, isn't it? But it's a reminder. It's a reminder that, that he is the one. Jesus is the one on whom everything is built. And if we're ready to cut each other off, for, for other reasons, then, then we might have built on something other than Jesus. And that's a real problem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that Paul, even as he tries to deal with these tensions, gives us this pattern of driving back to Jesus in everything we do. And we thank you that he leads us in triumphal procession, having conquered sin and death and the devil for us. Teach us to follow him well in that glorious parade. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.